411 Live. Where you can learn about issues that affect us every day. Stay the world. 411 Live. Real people, real talk. Made to help people in our community in every way. For your girl. 411 Live. What now? Well, let me tell you what I mean. Let's do kind of a review. Minnesota police officer Derek Chauvin was convicted on all three counts in April, that being second-degree unintentional murder, third-degree murder, and second-degree manslaughter. All of that for kneeling on the neck of George Floyd for nine and a half minutes. Now, Floyd, he's 46 years old, black father, repeatedly said, I can't breathe. Now Chauvin is scheduled to be sentenced on June 25th, but that is not the end. Hello, everyone. I'm Beverly Taylor, and this is the 411 Live, real people, real talk. Joining me to talk about what's next, I have two special guests, former U.S. Attorney James Santel and Milwaukee Attorney Lynette McNeely. Thank you both for joining me again. Thank you for having uh, and I this yeah, I say again, because you guys were here on the 411 Live shortly after the killing of George Floyd and in the midst of all of the protests. And now a lot has happened and we have a lot to unpack today. Let's kind of start with the sentencing, because that's kind of the next thing that will be coming up. I know that with this sentence, we're going for the sentence with the the highest degree of prison time, that being second degree murder. Now that could be up to 40 years. And then you deal with the sentencing guideline for that state, which suggests about 15 years. And then May, not too long ago, May 12th, the judge comes back and saying, we have some aggravating factors that can be put into this and considered within this sentencing. So I want to start with you, James. I want you to kind of walk us through what this aggravating factor issue means. Beverly, you've got it just right. You could be a professor in law school. Yeah, right. <laughs> and perhaps uh, we should all take our cues from you. Again, pleasure to be with you and Lynette this morning. Honored to be in your presence and talking about this very important issue for the community. And so, yes, this is Peter Cahill presided over the entire trial. And resulting, of course, as you said, in the conviction on these three counts, got it just right. The second degree murder charge maximum statutory exposure is 40 years. Is it unlikely that he will be sentenced to that? Probably not, because as you said, we also have this additional component under the Minnesota sentencing guidelines. And yes, the judge indicated at the time of the return of the verdict that he would take additional briefing argument on whether or not there are the aggravating factors, Beverly, that you just mentioned. And here are the three that he recently said, you know what, after hearing from the parties, from considering this, I'm going to factor into my sentence in June, these three aggravating factors that the defendant, in this case, Derek Chauvin, acted with particular cruelty, which plainly he did. I think most people would look at this and say, much uh, based upon on the uh, conduct there, an appropriate enhancement, that he abused his position of authority, again, acting as a police officer, violating his trust to the public, a second aggravating factor, and third, that he did it in the presence of children. We saw that some of those, including Daniela Frazier, the one who actually recorded this horrific event, and others there, those are the three aggravating factors, and that's the basis on which Judge Cahill 
can move from a kind of a base of 12 and a half years up beyond even 15, perhaps even going to 20. He's got to justify those upward adjustments, but highly likely my suspicion, and I suspect that obviously Lynette has a perspective too on this, but that, that the judge will in fact use those aggravating factors to go above what the sentencing guidelines would otherwise indicate the sentence should be. Yeah. Lynette, you want to jump in there? Well, I just wanted to make it clear what my vantage point is on my perspective on the trial. It's from a community perspective. So I work with the NAACP on legal redress for the state uh, conference of branches, as well as for the Waukesha branch for the NAACP. And we've been watching not only this case, but also how it impacts the community and the impact that it's having not only on how policing could change, but also the impact on, on the individuals who are suffering at the hands of our police misconduct. I think whatever happens in the sentence is the key is what are we going to do moving forward? How is that going to impact the behavior of police officers all throughout our communities? I'm very, very excited, or if, if, there's, if that's the word to use, that the judge is considering aggravating factors in this instance. I think the um, behavior, the malice that was engaged in sitting uh, on Mr. Floyd's neck for as long as he did, the video shows us a, de a cold deadness in the behavior that I'm really happy to see will be addressed uh, potentially or considered by the court in, in the sentence. So this is going to be an interesting scenario for Mr. Chauvin and for that particular state of Minnesota, but also the impact on the community is going to be extremely, hopefully, positive. Okay. And the other thing, to throw something else in there, there's a, the appeal. Yeah. I mean, Derek Chauvin's attorney is appealing. And how will that affect this? Sure. Again, another, I'll, I'll take the, the legal procedure question, and then you know, my good colleague here, Lynette, will also uh, provide some insight on this. Two things unpacking that good question, Beverly. One is that uh, the defendants already filed a motion for a new trial, and the new trial motion will probably parallel in many ways the appeal. An appeal is taken after the sentencing is conducted. So right now that new trial motion is pending, and almost certainly an appeal will follow the sentencing. But I suspect that the two motions will partake of the same kinds of things. What are the arguments likely to come out of that motion to, for a new trial? Same kinds of things. Failure to sequester the jurors. Again, I'm not indicating support this, but these are the arguments that are going to come out. Failure to sequester the jurors, certainly during the course of deliberation, to move the trial. Remember, there was a request for a new venue based upon publicity. A huge amount of publicity issues related. Recall that the city of Minneapolis uh, provided $27 million to the family day before the trial began. Was the jury infected by that? We had the comments by Congressman Maxine Waters a few days before about that. There is a possibility of you raising a, an issues, alleged misconduct of prosecutor in making some statements during the course of closing argument, whether or not, uh, frankly, all of the emotional testimony, Daniela Frazier, others, that should have been admitted. All sorts of things, procedural things like the third degree murder charge, a number of things that will be advanced in that motion for a new trial. My own assessment, which I suspect is your next question, is probably that's going to be unsuccessful. Mm -hmm. uh, those are not frivolous arguments but they're not compelling. And again, I, I go back to the wonderful job that Peter Cahill did in balancing and measuring all these kinds of things, making a great record for not only a new trial motion, but also on the appellate record. 
And so I think that I would not anticipate that he is going to grant a new trial and to jump even further ahead. I do not believe that there will be an appellate decision reversing this conviction and sending this back for a new trial either. Well, you know, uh, for the defense, I mean, he's doing what he is supposed to do. Basically, he is throwing everything on the wall and seeing if something would possibly stick. Right. So that's that's kind of what. And that's your right um, as an American, right? I mean, that's the Constitution. (laughs) You you have the right to a defense. Yeah. The right to confront your witnesses. And a lot of the uh, issues that are brought up in that motion are pretty much the rights, your bill of rights, your rights that you have. Now, the, the concern I have, though, even with, with the trial, uh, even having the trial and now seeking an appeal, is the trauma that it's causing in, in the communities. Again, not only did we hear and learn about what uh, happened to Mr. George Floyd, but now we get to watch it on the video and we had a full trial where details were brought out. Right. And there seems to have been more trauma introduced because of Derek Chauvin's behavior. And then to actually ask for another trial, it just seems like there's additional impacts that could ha- possibly have. And the defense doesn't seem to have, you know, in, in the inter- they do have to defend their client, I understand. But then there's also a trial strategy that should be considered a community strategy. Uh, how is that going to impact other people? What's for the good of the state, too, it should, I think, is some things that I know I would consider when I'm defending clients. And I think in this case, in the interest of I mean, everyone you know, healing from this, the question is, do we really need another trial? I mean, what what can they negotiate so that we can put this to rest and start healing as a nation? It doesn't seem like Derek Chauvin is ready to do that or let us heal. You know, <laughs> speaking to some of what you were just saying, I saw a lot of the testimony. I looked at a lot of the trial and you know how we hear a lot about the hardship that police officers go through because of the job, that it's a tough job mentally, you know, the whole bit. But I think that trial showed that crime, it affects the community, the neighborhood, the people who live in those communities. It has a devastating effect on them as well. And seeing those people on the witness stand testifying to what they saw, testifying to them wanting to help, testifying about them feeling helpless, testifying that they were feeling guilt that they could not intervene and help George Floyd. And seeing them weeping on that stand, when I saw that, my thought was, I am witnessing trauma. This is trauma for these people. And we know their names and they've got faces and they've got lives. We know it's not just Daniela Frazier, uh, but we know their names. It's Donald Williams, it's uh, Charles McMillan, it's Courtney Ross, all these people who told this incredibly human story and again, turning a horrific tragedy into something that America can grow from, which is, I think, the purpose of our discussion here this morning. Isn't that one of the great lessons of this, the involvement of human beings who describe, as you just said, Beverly, and implicit in Lynette's good comments of just a few moments ago, this notion that this is not, yes, first and foremost, an horrific death of an American citizen our colleague, our friend, our, our partner in life here. And, but beyond that, also this incredible impact upon people. And how do we know that? Look at what they said. Look at how they behaved on the stand. And look at what a compelling statement they made about the involvement of human beings, Americans in the 21st century, in our mm-hmm. justice process. That is reassuring to me, candidly, even again, in the midst of this horrific tragedy. Absolutely. And as Jim was talking, I was... I was remembering the conversation about 
the impact of the 1960s demonstrations mm -hmm. on the American psyche, the use of video and television to show protest and to get the message out there, to show people sitting at the lunch counters and getting beat. I think to some extent, unfortunately, we might be a little numb to that image. And that's part of the conversation we've heard around George Floyd and the police killings. Like now we even have video evidence and nobody cares. But here we had a trial where the actual victims spoke and told their narrative. And as Jim was talking, I was thinking, well, oh, maybe that's going to be the thing that causes the change because we've done the videos, we've done the television. <laughs> and granted, it does impact the way our communities feel. And it did increase the number of individuals engaged in protests after the incident. But that's a really good point, Jim. Having that story told, having it told at trial, meeting the people, getting the names, maybe that will create some more of a full circle response from all the communities in America to make change. And I think we're seeing some great changes and hopefully the momentum will continue. Yeah, absolutely. I have another question that I want to ask, but we're coming up against that break and we're real close. So let's just take the break now. And when we come back, I want to talk about another aspect in this trial that I know that you guys will want to talk about. So stay with us. You're listening to the 411 Live. We'll be right back. Not completing high school is more of a social thing than it was an academic thing. Even though all these years have passed, I still had that longing to have my diploma. I have a mentor and she convinced me to continue my education. No one receives a diploma alone. If you're even considering getting your high school diploma, go get it. You can do it. Find free adult education classes near you at finishyourdiploma.org. Welcome back to the 411 Live. I am talking with former U.S. Attorney James Santel and Milwaukee Attorney Lynette McNeely, and we are talking about what's next after the conviction in the um, Derek Chauvin case. And looking at that trial, and here's what I want, wanted to bring up to you guys. Well, first of all, I thought the prosecution did an outstanding job. And they called on witnesses to show George Floyd as a person, as a family man, as a person who loves, you know, that kind of thing. But Lynette, I remember a conversation that we had prior, and you were talking about the fact that it's, it's a shame that we have to spend that time humanizing George Floyd. And I right. thought that was an interesting point. Right. Another indictment, another indictment on our, our society and the racism that we've been um, nurturing, maybe the, perhaps the I'm sorry, perhaps the white supremacy that exists, that, that we have to respond to that in some way in order to kind of right the scales of the balance. And we saw that in the, in the George Floyd case. We couldn't just accept that he was a citizen of the United States that was living his life and was killed with a knee on his neck after eight minutes by a police officer. We can't address how the government and allowing a police officer to do that is sponsoring street killings and executions of citizens. We had to introduce additional information to say, oh, but this was wrong. <laughs> and you know, I don't know what that says fully about our society and culture, but it should, it should make us all question what we're supporting here. Are you saying that, that they had to, you know, humanize, you know, because he's a black male, make everybody see that he is a human being who deserves better 
but you've got to prove it. You've got to show it. You've got to have people to testify to that. And you're saying maybe if if he were white, that would not have been necessary? You know, I don't know how things would have been different if he were white. I think we've kind of, we've complicated some of the value judgments we engage in America quite nicely to where race is, you know, becoming more easier to hide as your issues. You could just, you know, it could be poverty. It could be drug use. There's other attributes that we've assigned to uh, people in our community to render them valueless, to render them worthy or not, not worthy of the rights and protections of full citizenship. Now it started with African-Americans, of course, started with the whole slavery issue. I mean, if you have a country that allows for an entire group of people to not have any rights or, um, any control over their own bodies. And then we work from there. You can see why there would be remnants of that even today in our policies mm-hmm. um, and in the way that we uh, interact with one another. Also with the implementation of Jim Crow for all those years, we have a full body of law and systems that squarely allowed for African-Americans to not be treated at the same citizenship level as, our, as white people. And that just stopped in the 1960s, right? So, of course, there may be some existing residue on how our legal system addresses the rights of African-Americans today. And having a U.S., uh, the attorney who was in charge of, of this case, who was that, Keith? Is that his name? Keith Ellison, right? The Keith Ellison, yeah. He came to the NAACP uh, National Conference a few times. Great man. But he... I think he understood that legacy, that history, and he knew that today in that or in that courtroom at that time, he had to provide something to address that, to address that residue. So I don't want to say, yes, a white person would be treated better, but I don't know. But I do know that history's there and a, a keen attorney is going to have to address it. Gotcha. You couldn't say it much better than, than Lynette has said it, the, the, the very fine point in it, again, doesn't matter if you are passing a $20 counterfeit bill or you're a banker. It doesn't matter if you are uh, have a prior drug addiction that you're wrestling with or you're in counsel or a counselor, um, as she just said, um, you're a citizen of the United States of America. From a purely legal standpoint, to respond to your question, Beverly, I remember watching this and thinking, gosh, why should this be relevant? And could you make a motion, frankly, against the prosecution? Again, I would have done exactly what the prosecution done did for all the reasons Lynette just identified, but you think about it from a purely legal, shouldn't be relevant in 2021, what your history is. There's nothing about the proof needed under a second degree, third degree or manslaughter charge that requires proof of who the victim is. Right. need to know is what Lynette just described. You're a human being, you're a citizen of this country, you deserve life. And frankly, even the federal charges, I suspect we'll talk about, talk about that deprivation of life and do not qualify that based upon who you are what you've done, what what things have happened in your life, good, bad, and indifferent. All right, so let's just j- dive right into it because what two weeks later, after the the conviction, the federal charges come out against Chauvin and the three other officers involved in this killing, deprivation of rights under color of law. James, what does this mean? So, eighteen U.S.C. two forty two. Once again, Professor, we'll talk about the statute that does make it. Um, a violation of federal law, 18 U.S.C. 242, whoever subjects any person to the deprivation of rights, privileges, immunities protected by the Constitution or the laws is violative, is, viol- is guilty of a crime 
Um, and there's a case called Screws versus United States of America that sort of affirms the import of that. That's the federal charge. It is different, even as I describe it, from a murder charge, a second or manslaughter charge, but predicated upon the same facts, right? Here you're alleging to the point that we were just chatting about, you have violated this man's constitutional rights by depriving him of what? The ultimate right to life. And that's what, what Merrick Garland has now done. That is what the Department of Justice has now done, charging, again, criminally, Derek Chauvin with that offense conduct. And also, as you just said, the other three, again, the same kind of thing. And then adding on as to Derek Chauvin, this other portion of the second indictment, another event that I, I don't think we heard a whole lot about, unreasonable force on a Minneapolis 14-year-old in September of 2017. And I'll mention it just because, again, does this sound familiar? Um, he held the teenager by his throat and struck him multiple times in the head with a flashlight. He held his knee on his neck and his upper back of the teenager, even after the teenager was lying prone, handcuffed and wrestling. How horrific that is, it sounds familiar. So Department of Justice, thank you. You're doing the right job and important that this federal prosecution always also goes forward uh, parallel to the state prosecution affirm that not only has there been a horrific murder that took the life of our partner, our friend, our colleague, our citizen, but also there's been a violation of the Constitution, this fundamental right that founding fathers and others have talked about for 240 years. Do you think this will be hard to prosecute because it's there's willful that's mm -hmm. in there? Is it an intentional thing, willful? Now, I think, you know, I'm a layman here. I'm thinking that it may not be so hard to convict Chauvin on the charges, but the other three, I don't know. That's a good point, isn't it? it? It is a good point. And of course, recall too that the state trial we're still waiting for now been pushed off to March so that the federal trial can, can happen in between. The three were charged with aiding and abetting on that second, third, and, mm -hmm. and second degree man. So there, that is still pending, but you're right. And to go more broadly on the 18 USC 242 issue, this has always been a challenge for federal prosecutors, including me. On the six and a half years that I was the United States Attorney, there are more than a handful of cases where we looked at this and said, can we, can we show that there was a death? Absolutely. Do we believe that there was a willful uh, murder here? Yes. Can you prove that to 12 people beyond a reasonable doubt? That's the challenge. And can you show that there's that willful level? That has always been the challenge under the Screws case, once again, that said you've got to have that high level of proof. And that's why the George Floyd uh, Policing Act is so important, because it reduces that level of proof in the federal system from willfulness, brings it down to knowing or reckless conduct. And that's the reason why that legislation, which I'm sure we'll talk about as well, has that as a nugget in there. That's important. It advances the capacity of federal prosecutors in the future to charge uh, these kinds of cases. Yeah, but I think um, the hint, or you were kind of hinting at whether or not the other officers who were present and who weren't on the neck, but who also contributed to the death of George Floyd by holding him down, mm -hmm. threatening those who, were, who could assist him with bodily harm if they interfered, right? And could this legislation, could this law be used against them? Was that your yeah. question? And I don't, I mean, I think that's, that's a good point because when you're following commands, Right. That is willful, I guess. <laughs> but yeah. you, did you have the intent to hurt the individual or kill them? Or did you have the intent to follow the command? Yeah. We'll have and to see. And we know that all out. three, all, we know that all three did different things, right? Right. Back 
legs, and then the third officer was standing there supposedly handling crowd control, which really wasn't a, a necessary right. thing there. But different things, and so aiding and abetting in different ways in the state charge, and to Lynette's good point once again, that makes the federal charge, as to them, right. to show that they willfully were, were depriving uh, George Floyd of his constitutional right to life. So that's, that's a difficult uh, case. Right. As- we're almost out of time, but I want to throw in really fast what comes out of all of this. You know, where do we go from here? There is the uh, George Floyd uh, legislation, Justice in Policing Act of 2020, that's out there. The House has already passed it. Don't know where that's going to go, but um, it's a good piece of legislation. You know, it brings in a lot of the things, uh, qualified immunity, the chokeholds, and all of those different things. And then community involvement. I mean, after George Floyd was killed, there were a lot of protests, but okay, after you stop the marching and everything, what do you do? What do you do to hold people accountable and make the system better? There's still so much work to be done, right? That's the truth, isn't it? There is a huge amount to be done. And again, passing legislation can change the broad parameters of that, but it doesn't change until once again, you get into the individual, we've got 18,000 police agencies in this country, 18,000 of them, some very small, some very large. I would offer this view in addition to the legislation that you know President Obama had the task force on 21st century policing. You go back and you look at the 59 specific recommendations about things like training, recruiting the right people into these positions, right? Um, policy and oversight on things like chokeholds and, and police stops and Terry stops and things like that technology, social media, building trust and legitimacy in the community. You have to seize upon all that and you've got to drive that down into the community so that your local police agencies, your police chief, your sheriff say, you know what, I'm going to embrace that. I'm going to do this here locally. And Washington may compel it, but it's got to happen locally. The other thing I will say, just to be on, remain on my soapbox for just a moment, the other big takeaway is elections have consequences, right? Mm-hmm. The president you get a different attorney general, and what does he do? He reinvigorates pattern of practice investigations in Minneapolis and Louisville. He, he files federal charges against the four officers there. Um, he also charges against, not a police case, but Ahmad um, Arbery in, in Georgia. Yeah. Uh, that comes out. That's not a police case, but it, again, that vindicates the same sort of thing, a violation of constitutional rights there. Elections have consequences. We all know that. Your listeners know that. Your, your observers know that. But let's reinforce that notion that the changes in administrations, watch what happened. Look at what happened in the past right. several weeks to change the way that we're doing prosecutions and these pattern of practice investigations, uh, the collaborative reform things that we initiated here in Milwaukee many years ago. Those are the kinds of things that we should be doing going forward. Lynette, you have the last word. You know, I, I agree with everything that Jim said. Um, elections do have consequences. Watch this legislation. This has to be done at the local level. Elections need to be done at the local level too. Great to have new people in place at the federal level and the, and, and having the introduction of this legislation. But more importantly, who are you electing as your mayor? Um, Wisconsin, we can uh, elect our sheriff and the mayor selects the police chief along with the uh, fire and police commission in certain areas. But you have to stay engaged in who you're allowing to serve you and your government. And um, also being aware of 
some of this new policy coming out. To Jim's point, you know, we can pass as many laws, but the issue is not necessarily the passage of legislation as much as it is how does it flesh out in your community, right? So the NAACP was fully aware of this for many years, which is why I joined this organization. I think they started in 1909, and it was to address lynching and, uh, and lynching that was going on in America without prosecution. Sound familiar, right? right. And to, today, I think the execution of individuals on the street by our police officers is very similar to the dynamics we saw in 1909. And so what we learned in our our intelligence over the 100 years plus has been that you can have any law you want, but you need to make sure it's, it's working for the people in the way it's intended. And so we had the sit-ins, as I mentioned earlier, that was a way to challenge the civil rights laws right. and make sure, mm-hmm. or to challenge the, um, the Constitution uh, amendments um, and the rights that are provided to you there and say, hey, we have a right to sit wherever we want, get public accommodations. So what? What's up? You know, and, and if you're getting arrested because of that, now we can start the conversation. So the bottom I mean, line course, is we have to get involved. Right? We have to get involved. And, um, and and once these laws get passed, we have to actually use them locally. Absolutely. All right. I'm cutting you off because we've run out of time. Uh, no worries. You guys, you guys will have to come back <laughs> again. You know, you, you know, we'll be calling. So thank you so much spending this time with me and kind of going through and unpacking a lot of things that we are seeing and we're watching and of course we will have much more to talk about as you know this case progresses so thank you again for joining all right. <laughs> Both of you once again. James Santel, Thank former you. U.S. attorney, Lynette McNeely, a Milwaukee attorney. Thanks, guys. Have a great one. Okay, guys. And thank Good you. Thank you always. Thank you for joining us for another edition of the 411 Live. Real people, real talk. Remember, we are a nonprofit organization. So if you'd like to help us out, go to our website, the 411live.org, and you know, help us out. We'd appreciate it. But until next time, I'm Beverly Taylor. This is the 411 Live. Real people, real talk. If you would like to check out past episodes, there are many ways. Go to your favorite podcast platform. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Like and watch us on Facebook. Watch and subscribe to our YouTube channel. And if you have suggestions for future episodes, go to our website, the411live.org. Thank you.